we started into these prophecy updates, I really, I had intended to do, there was one that I really wanted to do, and as I sat down to study for the, that first one, I realized there was something we needed to talk about first. I really wanted to talk about the rapture of the church and what the Bible had to say about that, but then I started to realize, now we got to get, we got to talk about the run-up to the rapture, and then as I was studying for both of those, the Lord was like, yeah, and I want you to talk about Israel, because if you're talking prophecy, you need to talk Israel, so I thought, okay, I'll do that, and then I just kind of opened up to, well, how, how many of these do you want me to do? You know, Lord, three, four, a year's worth? I don't know. And um, you may ask me, Rick, how far ahead do you plan your studies? Well, if we're in a book, I'll plan the whole thing out. That doesn't mean that's where we'll go. It depends on where the Lord takes us because sometimes what I teach on a Sunday or a Wednesday is literally just minutes I've just studied before we're in here together or the Lord has just shown me something, as he did this morning. So, we're going to continue a little bit further. Something I recognized last week was as we were going through these prophecy topics and looking at Scripture related that we had spent a lot of time in Matthew 24. And in fact, we had pretty much covered the first 41 verses of Matthew 24, and I thought, well, let's, let's just finish it out. And that's where my study began. So if you'll pick up with me, Matthew 24, verse 42 where Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse by those who need to call it something. I just call it Jesus' good teaching. And he's on the Mount of Olives with the apostles, and he says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And that's like a little mini one-verse parable. The head of the house, who's the head of the house on this planet? Well, it's the prince of the power of the air. It's the devil himself. At least he considers it this, this his house. He stole it in the first place. He usurped it. But he, if he knew when Jesus was coming, he would be ready to fight that. He doesn't know. And Jesus uses this one-verse parable also to say that anyone who's a homeowner, if you had any idea that, that a thief was coming, you'd, you'd be prepared, you'd be ready, you'd be locked down. But nobody knows the day or the hour, right? Not the angels, nor the Son, but the Father knows. So, Father, we ask that you would prepare us and ready us and keep us on the alert until you come. That whether it's today or tonight or tomorrow or next week, Lord, if you give us another year or five or ten, that it would make no difference as to our alertness and our readiness and our preparedness to receive you, to hear you, literally, Lord, to hear you and be received by you when you call us up. Make us ready. And I pray that you will open our hearts this morning by your word, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, and I think you've all heard it many times, or at least most of you have heard this, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And we often stop right there, because that's such a potent, encouraging, comforting verse. But listen to what he says next. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. 
Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I've told you ahead of time, Jesus said. He does that many times in his ministry, said to the apostles, said to his followers, I'm telling you now so that when it takes place, you'll be ready, you'll believe, you'll see it and go, oh, that's what he said. That's what he was talking about. I have told you before it happens. It, what is it? I will go away and I will come to you. So for the apostles' sake, 2,000 years ago, I told you I'm going to go away. And when they saw him go away, their faith increased. They were ready. They, they believed. Oh, that's what he said. He told us he was going to go away. But he also says, and I will come to you so that when you see it, your faith will increase. I've told you ahead of time. He came to them at Pentecost, right? Ten days after he went, his spirit came. They recognized that. They experienced that. They believed even more. But it's more than that. It's I will come to you. And when he calls from the heavens, when he calls from the sky, our faith will explode. And we'll say, we knew it because he told us ahead of time. One of the advantages of, of what we've been calling, remember this, the lantern of biblical prophecy. Remember that little snowman ornament I talked about several weeks ago that I gave, gave Cheryl for Christmas? A little snowman for 2020, holding a lantern out. That's what we needed to get through the year, the light of the word of God. And it's Peter's lamp shining in a dark place, 2 Peter 1.19. But the reason that it's so potent and powerful is not only does Bible prophecy tell us what to expect, it tells us what to do in that expectation. This is not just a theological word. This is the truth that tells us how to live, that gives us indication on how we are supposed to be, what we are supposed to do until the master comes. Bible prophecy answers that question. What do we do until Jesus comes? And that's the question that's framed our faith for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the church has known, Christians have known, Sometimes a small remnant has known that he's coming back and it changes us and it impacts the way we live. And woven into all of that, I've told you ahead of time, is here's what you do. Here's how you live. Here's who you are to be. This morning I want to hammer home a point that we actually began making several weeks ago in our study through the Leviticus book. The, the priestly studies, if you will. And, and the point is simply this. Peter made it very clearly. 1 Peter 2, 9, I repeat, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Underscore that, underline that. You are a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those were words previously only spoken of Israel, now spoken to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a royal priest. And John said in Revelation 1.6, he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter didn't say you will be a royal priesthood. John didn't write Jesus will make us a kingdom of priests. Both said we are. You are a royal priesthood right now, here, today. In fact, at the very moment of faith, the royal priesthood is underway. 
The moment a person accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior and steps into that relationship, they step into their priestly service. And this is the thing that we've been talking about several Wednesdays. And a few times on Sunday, this has kind of found its way into our prophecy studies as well. But maybe for some of you, that just sounds too holy. You think, priest? Man, I'm here in jeans and flannel, and, and, and you're calling me a priest? How does that work? It's really quite simple. Peter also said in 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts in your ignorance. Change your ways. But like the Holy One who called you, and here's the simple request of the Lord, be holy yourselves and all your behavior. Because it is written, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, be holy, for I am holy. Be holy. That's not helping me be a priest anymore, Rick, because I don't even know how to be holy. Okay, well, let's make it really simple. Jesus did, Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if you're uncertain about the whole holiness thing or the priest thing, just be perfect and you're good to go. That doesn't help. <laughs> I'm not perfect, you might say. Oh, but you are, Jesus would say. Yes, you are. Made perfect by his precious blood. Again, the moment you believe. Because our perfection is not based on what we do, it's based on who he is. The last thing, think about this, the last thing Jesus said on the cross, do you remember? It is finished, right? It is finished, tetelestai in the Greek. Tetelestai translated means perfect. It's perfect. It's perfectly accomplished, perfectly done, finished. It is perfect. That's the word, tetelestai. But listen, when he said in Matthew 5, 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, same word. Same word. We could say you are to be finished as your heavenly father is finished. It is finished on the cross. It is perfect on the cross. You are to be perfect. How am I perfect? By the cross. So when Jesus said it is finished, it was for anyone who trusts in his perfect, precious blood. But, and we talked about this recently as well, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, that sounds like I'm being perfected. So which is it? Am I perfect or am I being perfected? Listen, he's perfecting the good work in you. You die right now, this moment, you're perfect. You're gonna be with Jesus if you walk in faith in him, if you believe in him, if you belong to him. Though you may feel imperfect in your life in the things you have yet to accomplish for him, he sees you as perfect, but he is also perfecting his work in you. He's perfecting our righteousness. He's perfecting our behavior. That, that's how we can be both saved and sanctified at the same time. Now, when I understand that, that helps me be a priest because I realize I'm a perfect priest being made perfect. I don't know anywhere else that that works. But in the eyes of the Father, I am perfect, and yet he is perfecting his good work in me. What could you ask for more than that in a priest? So you're a royal priesthood, and that makes good biblical sense, but we still don't always feel priestly. 
All you got to have is an argument with your spouse, and you're not feeling very priestly in that moment. All you got to do is something dumb and recognize your frailty, your human failure, your sin, and you don't feel very priestly. Well, let's take another run at this. You are a royal priesthood, but understand this. Believer in Jesus, you are also just a kid. Can you do that? Can you be a child? I'm not sure if I can wear priest and that mantle and that, that have, that, the weight of all that. I'm not sure if I can do that. Well, then don't worry about let that. Let Jesus worry about that. But can you be a child? Because Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. That's the word in the New American Standard Bible, infants. The word is nepios. Nepios in the Greek means babes. Some translations, I think King James says, I, I re, I'm praise you that you have revealed this to babes, which when I read that, I thought he was just talking about good-looking girls. You know, you've revealed it to babes. Okay, well, wow. Even they know. <laughs> but it also translates little children. You revealed this to little children. What the word nepios means is, it means minors, not yet of age. Or unskilled and untaught. Can you be, before Jesus, unskilled and untaught? I don't know anyone who can't answer yes to that. Because there are things in my faith life, in my walk with Jesus, where I know I'm still unskilled, Lord. I'm untaught. I need you to teach me. See, that's the point. In being a child, in having revelation, we don't come to Jesus with cognitive reason and heady intelligence. I figured it all out, Lord. I have all knowledge such that I can look at you and say, yes, I believe that you are real. See, you've just contradicted yourself. I have all knowledge, therefore I believe. No, you believe because of faith. Children don't have knowledge and have no problem believing what they're told. And the point is we come to the Lord like newborns, like infants, like nepios. That's where revelation comes. We might just say born again. One of the beautiful things about being born again is I realize I don't have to be Mr. Know-it-all. In fact, I realize I'm not. I'm not. I'm unskilled and untrained. Like, like Peter and John. Remember before the Sanhedrin? They realized that these two guys were, were unschooled, ordinary men. Do you know what unschooled and ordinary meant? One of the words used for it, at least, was idiotus. Think that one through. These guys are idiots, but they've been with Jesus. I can be an idiot. <laughs> I can be a child. Priest, that's sometimes hard to wear. But man, Jesus said this has been revealed to children. Matthew 18, verse 1, says the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted, that is, unless you change your mind and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We come to him as children, like little ones, like nepios. We look into the eyes of God, and we simply know and trust him as our Abba. Think about how a little child just trusts mom and dad, especially early on before they know enough to know that mom and dad don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the child, the, the little baby in mama's arms just gazing up at mom and everything is right for that child. That's, that's what we're invited to with Jesus. Jesus says you need to become like that, but they weren't listening 
Clearly the disciples weren't listening because just days later they tried to scuttle the kids from coming to Jesus. And he stopped them. Matthew 19, 14, he said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Such as these? That mean only children are saved? It means those who just want to come and be with me. Those who aren't coming to gain head knowledge, but those who just want to be where I am. The kingdom belongs to such as these, those who want to be near to Jesus. So I ask you this morning, who are you running to? Who are you listening to? Who do you want to be with? You know, we're living in an, an age where, man, the latest podcast, social influencer, Telegram, some of you are on Telegram, because you got to get on Telegram because they took away, you know, parlor or whatever it was. I'm watching people, and it's very interesting. We are just voraciously hungry to hear from someone. So we sign up, and we get podcasts coming in, and we get telegrams coming in. And we, we, we follow these social influencers. We go, oh, I like, that. I like what that guy's saying. I like what, what she's doing. And so we start to follow and race after all of these. Hey, there are some good podcasts out there. The Bridge Podcast is one of those. There are some, you know, good telegrams. There's some people you can sign up and you can get their downloads of their stuff, and, and that's all fine. But there's also a lot of heady humanity. Are you one of those where you've got to have the very latest word from the, from the latest person of the latest thing that's happening? Or are you one of those who says, I, I just want to be with Jesus? You know you don't even need your phone or your computer to be with Jesus? You can just be with him. And if you want to hear from him, Open up your Bible. You know, they can shut down parlor, but they, they're going to have to pry my Bible out of my hot living hands. Just be with Jesus. Let him fill you with something that is so much more than knowledge. In fact, the knowledge of the word of God and the knowledge of Christ, oh, that's, that'll stay with you. That never grows old. Fellow children, the greatest blessing is found when we simply come to Jesus as children, just trusting him. But maybe for some, even that's too much. I, I'm not, maybe a priest. I can, some days, priestly, yeah. Uh, most days, child, but some are like, I can't even come as a child. That's more than I can muster. Maybe you are like the prodigal in the pig pen. And you're saying to yourself, as Jesus taught in the story, Luke 15, 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, and some of you feel that way. I am not worthy to be called a child of God. But the prodigal says, make me as one of your hired men. And you know what the father does? Doesn't even hear him. <laughs> he's just calling for the robe and the ring and the sandals. Kill the fatted calf. Let's party. It's, it's my son's home. But listen, God makes provision for you to come to him as a priest, as a child, and even as a servant. If that's the best you can do, let's start there. He will hire you on. He will bring you into the household. 
Someone might say, I'd love to be a priest. I'm not there yet. I'd like to even be a child. I'm not that trusting yet. But for now, can I just be a servant? And our God says, yes. And you know what happens? Listen to me. Servants, children, and priests all come to the same table to eat of the same food. That's something we ran across a few weeks back. Leviticus chapter 22. Listen to this. Verse 10 the Lord says, no layman, that is no stranger to the priesthood, no outsider, is to eat the holy things. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy things. The, the holy things are the holy gift. It's the kodeshim, and, and that, that speaks of the sacrificial offerings, you know, the, the, the animal offerings that were made. Some of that priest or some of that meat went to the priest. You know, the bread of the presence in the holy place. So that bread, that bread was eaten by the priest. So that was priestly food. They were actually staples for God's priestly household. Did, did you go back and study through Leviticus 21 and 22? That was your homework. Who did the homework? Good. All right. Give yourself an A. Everyone else, pop quiz. Here we go. <laughs> Read on. Leviticus 22, verse 11 says, if a priest buys a slave, that is an indentured servant, as his property with his money, that one may eat of it. And those who are born in his house, his children, may eat of his food. Know what that means? The priest, the child, and the servant all get to eat the food. The priest, the child, the servant all have as staple foods in the royal priestly household the holy things of God, the food of the Lord, all get to eat of it. So it doesn't matter if you, you feel like a servant, that's the best I can do, or I can be a child, or yes, Lord, I accept my royal priestly position. Whatever you think, wherever you are, we know what to do till the master comes because we all get to eat at the same table. We all share that food. Now, go back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Maybe you never left there. That's good. Stay right there. Remember as we went through Matthew 24 over the last two or three weeks that the first 31 verses, Jesus chronologically covers the fall of Jerusalem right up to his glorious return. And you can just walk it through. The fall of Jerusalem through 2,000 years of church history, going through the birth pangs that increase in intensity and frequency. Finally, we see the glorious return of Jesus and all that is talked about by the Lord Literally, verse 4 through 31. Then in verse 32 through verse 35, he says, learn the parable of the fig tree. And we talked about that last week. The fig tree, Israel. The, the fig tree, when it puts forth its leaves, it becomes tender. You know that summer is near. And we talked about the generation alive at the time of the fig tree will not pass away. Or perhaps the fig tree itself is the generation, that is Israel, will not pass away till all these things take place. By the way, I gotta give a side note here. Some heard me say last week, some actually asked the question, did Pastor Rick say Jesus is coming in 2041? Is that, is that what he said? I didn't say that. Go back and listen, I, I didn't say that. Let me be clear, I think he's coming way sooner than that. I hope so. But what if he doesn't? Well, the Bible guarantees 
that the generation of Israel will not pass away till all these things take place. So his word is true and his word stands. God will keep his people Israel. And that's what we talked about last week. Even as he keeps his people the church, which is what I want to focus on more this week. God will keep his people Israel. God keeps his people the church. Well, then in Matthew 24, picking up in verse 36 through 41, Jesus talks about the rapture of the church. He talks about one will be taken. The word taken is literally one will be received unto and one will be left, as in left behind, as in the the rapture. And we studied through this, looked at that. Now he wraps up this section of teaching on readiness. And again, verse 42, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. And God is intentional with that. That's on purpose. If we knew, you know you. Have you seen yourself? I know me. I know what I would do. If I knew he was coming January 1st of 2041, I can tell you what, the next 20 years would be pretty kicked back when it came to faith for most people. We got time. I'll really get serious in the last six months. Okay, maybe the last year so I look good. But that gives me plenty of time just to not worry about it. That, that's the human nature. Here's the date. Okay, then I'll worry about it the night before. How many of you did that with your tests in high school and or college? I know when the date of the test is. Why am I stressing about it now? I know when the papers do. I'll start writing about 11 o'clock the night before. Not a problem. We don't know the day or the hour. But again, be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Be on the alert. Verse 44, for this reason you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. How many of you think he's going to be here in the next five minutes? See, you just proved that he probably will. (laughs) But going on, continuing on, verse 45, who then is the faithful and sensible Slave or servant. Okay, maybe you're not in the priestly mood or the childlike mood, but maybe you can just say, I'll come on as a hired person. I'll be a servant. All right, then listen. Who is the faithful and sensible slave or servant whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their, note this, food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And that phrase for me has lasted for years now. So doing. So doing. I want to be found so doing. So doing what? Giving the proper food. Think again about that priestly household. The priest obviously ate the holy food of the sacrifices. The child born in the priest's house could eat the holy food of the sacrifices. So could the servant, all three, shared the food at that table. And the servant is the one who feeds his or her fellow servants. The child makes sure his or her fellow children are getting the food. The priest sees to it that his or her fellow priest receives of this food. The number one image that Jesus uses in this parabolic picture of readiness is food. I love it. It all centers around a meal, around the eating. Do you think that is coincidental? Listen again, Leviticus 22, 11. If a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it 
And those born in the house may eat of his food. The priest, the child, and the servant all sharing in the food. And that is our calling. What do we do till he comes? We are so doing in feeding the household. Six times in Leviticus 21 and 22, we hear the phrase, the food of God. The food of your God. The lachem el, or, or ka eloche. The bread of our God. So what's the food? The food is the bread. What is the bread? Jesus said, Matthew 4, verse 4, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. I heard Jerry Seinfeld talking about Wonder Bread yesterday. Wonder Bread. Why is it called Wonder Bread? You wonder what it really is. I mean, that stuff's not bread. It tastes really good with Skippy, but it's not. What it, I don't know. I wonder. Anyway. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy verse 3 of chapter 8. What is our food? And that's primary to understand if we are giving them their food at the proper time, what is the food that we have to give? And the number one thing to note is it's the word of God. It's his word. That is what we are giving each other. We're giving to the priests and the children and the servants in the household. We're, we're sharing this food. And you know what's interesting to me? I have been noticing a near panic. And I don't know, panic not in terms of anxious, but a good kind of panic. A rush, if you will, among Christians back to the word of God. And I've been watching it happen this month. More than I've seen it in several years. People who are hungry to get back to the word. Back to the good food. Back to the table of the Lord. And the sad thing is it's becoming remarkably hard to find in the church. And I know this because I'm getting emails from different people, contact from different people, one from South Carolina this last week, and if y'all are listening, hey, South Carolina, a, a couple who retired there, and the email said, we, we're longtime Chuck Smith Calvary Chapel people. If you don't know much about Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel, you got to know that Chuck just started teaching the word, and that was the thing. That's what made Calvary Chapel grow and explode all over the world, the teaching of the word verse by verse through the Bible. And they said, well, that's, that's where we came from. And, and we moved to South Carolina, and I'm paraphrasing their email, but they moved to South Carolina to retire, the warmer climes, warmer water, that kind of thing, and, and they're having trouble finding a church that will, even Calvary Chapel, that will touch Bible prophecy or will teach Revelation. And they found us. So they're listening now. And that, that blows my mind. Not because, hey, we've been found in South Carolina. No, it, it blows my mind because where are the churches? How hard is that? they got to go all the way to Washington to find teaching of the word? How about right down the street? There was a day in this country where you could walk down the street and go into a church and somebody was probably teaching the Bible. And that seems to have gone away. It is our food. This is how we are nourished on the word of God. Amos 8.11, a verse I've quoted many times, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People are going to look for it. They're not going to be able to find it. Hence this email from my friends now in South Carolina. This is staple food. This is necessary 
food. This is what we eat, what we feed upon, the priest, the child, the servant. And to be clear, Jesus said, hey, listen to me, John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. This word. But listen, the food of God is also something else. It's not only this word. Jesus had just had a remarkable conversation with a woman, which makes it partially remarkable, but also remarkable because she had been married and divorced five times. She's now living with a guy. And, and what was worse than that, she wasn't even a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Jesus has this fantastic conversation with her, and she is the first person in the Bible, according to Scripture, to whom Jesus revealed, I who speak to you am he. I am Messiah. She gets to hear it first. That's, that's grace. That's Jesus. But listen to what happens. In that conversation, so they've, they've had this amazing conversation. The Lord reveals himself to her. And verse 27 of John chapter 4 says, at this point his disciples came. They'd just been, you know, at the local Burger King. And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman Yet no one said, what do you speak? Or why do you speak with her? Isn't that just like us? We're just amazed someone's doing something in the name of the Lord, but we don't ask. Why are you doing that? What's the purpose? Oh, we just make assumptions anyway. Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and they were coming to him, listen, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. Someone's handing him a whopper, eat. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food, listen, my food, fellow priests, children, servants, listen, my food is to do the will of of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Our necessary food is the word of God. But our food is also to do his will. That is sustenance for us. You could say sustenance is obedience. Les talked on obedience a few weeks back. You want to grow your faith? You want to increase your trust in Jesus? Obey him. Do, don't just read what he says, do what he says. Follow what he says, obey his word. John 6, Jesus said, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven who gives life to the world. Speaking of himself, right? He also said in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is both the word of God and the will of God. He's the word who did the will. And so our necessary food, that's a phrase that Job coined, he is my necessary food. Our necessary food is to do the will of the word. Both are on the table. The word of God and the will of God. Jesus is the one who shows us how God's word and his will feed and nourish faith like nothing else. James 1.22 says, prove yourselves doers of the word. That is obedient to his will. 
and not merely hearers who delude themselves. You know, you can go to church, you can listen to the word and do nothing with it and become delusional and miss the point completely. But when we start to act on the word of God, to live out the word of God, to feed the word to others, <laughs> that'll feed your faith. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. I like that. The writer of James, Jacob is his name, says, you're gas. You're just gas. And you're going to be here and then you're going to vanish. And then he says this, and it's one of these old phrases I just love. He says, instead, what we ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills, Lord willing. I love Bible prophecy. I love Bible prophecy, but I can tell you this, for all my years of study, and I put in a lot of years of study, specifically Revelation and Bible prophecy, I still can't tell you what's happening tomorrow. I barely can keep track of my family schedule. Cheryl all the time is saying, I told you this was what we were doing tomorrow. Oh, yeah, okay, I don't know. Lord willing, we will do this or we will do that. Best I can say, and one of my favorite things to say is, Lord willing and the saints don't rise. So we'll make these plans, Lord willing. Acquiescing to the will of the Father, understanding the word of the Father. We live centered on God's will. What does he want to do? Not what do I want to do and how can I work God into it. It's what is he doing and how can I align to that. The will of God and the word of God. Job 23, 12, here's the verse I mentioned before. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I would rather have the word than bread because the word feeds and sustains me. Th think of God's word as superfood. You see all those things, that superfood out there. Super beets and super honey and super, there are all kinds of superfoods that you can get. God's word doesn't matter, doesn't concern itself with how I'm feeling at the moment. Slavish, childlike, priestly. His word and his will is supernaturally sustaining. Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. And there it is, both of them, doing the will and the word in the heart. But listen, go back to what Jesus is saying. The sensible, the faithful slave is the one who gives food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave who the master finds so doing when he comes, verse 47. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Now listen to me. I have more conversations with people who are distressed, anxious, and concerned about right now. And it still impresses me how little we think about our real life to come. We talk about this, but we've got to get this down. If we are focused on now, we will be anxious. If we are focused on then, I got nothing to worry about. At my age, at 56 years of age, I can be thinking, wow, I've crossed over the half century mark. How many more years do I even have? I'm, I'm reading about, you know, 
I remember, you know, musicians that I, that I liked back in the 80s, they're all dying. They're all dying off. I'll tell you what, until you get to that point in your life where people that you are somewhat contemporary with are dying off, you don't get it. It, it freaks me out sometimes. He's dead? How'd that happen? Brain aneurysm. How old was he, 57? Oh. Do you realize? I, I said this in a teaching recently. Even if I live to be 100 years, and by the way, I don't want to, but if I lived on this earth, in this body, to be 100 years old, how does that compare to the millennial kingdom? Which is 1,000 years. And by the way, when the millennial kingdom ends, I don't. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, we just continue on. And we continue on into glory with him. And that's life. That's what we're being prepared for. We are, we are infants right now. We are babies in this world. We're just getting ready for that life to come. Do you ever think about how literal Jesus was when he talked about the kingdom? It wasn't some kind of whimsical allegory. Oh, the, the fairy tale kingdom out there that perhaps, you know, live your life like you're going to live in some place like that. Pay attention, Rapunzel. It is not, that's not the thing. It's not a fairy tale. This is everything that we are being readied for. And right here he says it. He'll put you in charge of all his possessions. Why would he say that? To be in charge of all his possessions, my friends, that's a job description. You realize you have a job description. Roles that we are being prepared for in the coming kingdom. And honestly, while, while being mayor of Maui would be fantastic, being a garbage collector in the kingdom would be good too. We're being prepared for the future. Jesus launched his entire ministry on one platform. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Read, read Luke 19, where he, he gives the parable of the minas. Interesting parable, because he says, I'm going to give 10 to one guy. He gives 10 to one guy, 10 to another guy, and they invest it and make back double, right? And Jesus says in the parable that his master says, blessed are you, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you authority over 10 cities. I'm going to give you authority over five cities, the slaves who invested and doubled their investment were made governors over cities. Why would Jesus tell a parable like that? Because that's what's coming. To rule and reign with him in the kingdom. Read Revelation 1, Revelation 5, Revelation 20, all of which say we will rule and reign with him in his kingdom. That's why we're called a royal priesthood. Kingdom readiness which takes all the fear and anxiety out of us for this life and puts the focus on the life to come, which is what we were made for. It's what we were created for. I get a little excited about this. Well, let me ask you, does God dangle mythological carrots in front of us? Or does he do exactly what he says he's going to do? Jesus talks so much about the kingdom First of all, because it's coming, but also because, get this, a kingdom mentality changes everything about how I live right now. If I'm focused on the kingdom, then what I do right now is all for the kingdom. It's all looking ahead. It changes my hope. It changes my focus, my optimism, my vision. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let's show gratitude. 
by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The acceptable service that we render now is our development and our training to be servant priests then. And Jesus gives, and note these, three servant principles. So three servant principles, and they're all in the negative. Look at verse 48. He says, if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. How is he described as an evil slave? The one who believes that my master's not coming. This, this feeds the evil mentality. Principle number one is the servant does not capitulate to the mockers. Note that. The servant does not capitulate to the mockers. I could put it another way. The Christian just does not pay attention to those who say, where's the promise of his coming? You rapture crazies, you Christians who think at any moment it's going to happen, come on. And I have heard that from fellow Christians. And that is the description of the evil slave. The servant does not capitulate to the mockers. Now, people might ask me, Rick, why do you say things like here at the last, or these last days, or I think he's coming way sooner than 2041? Why, why, do, you, why do you put that stuff out there? Because aside from the obvious signs of the times that we live on, the facts on the ground, my friends, the servant does not capitulate to the mockers. 2 Peter 3, 3, know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? They just don't believe he's coming anytime soon. They believe that the master is not going to come for a long time. The Greek word is chronizai, and it means the master's delaying. He's delaying his coming. There's no rush for this. You know, I was thinking a bit about these mockers. I've always kind of taken them as, you know, jerks. Those who are scornful of Christianity. Listen, the mocker doesn't have to be scornful. They just have to be cynical. It doesn't have to be someone who's opposed. It can be someone who claims to be a Christian. Can fall into the category of the mocker if they're simply cynical about Jesus coming. About the end being near. I, I, don't, I don't really get into that stuff. Mocker. My friends, the servant child priest who assumes that the master is a long way off is at best a soul man and at worst a carnal Christian. Now I'm talking about servants here. I'm not even talking about those who mock because they don't believe at all. I'm talking about those who claim Christ and yet are cynical about the whole idea of his return. The person who says, I got all kinds of time. If you think you've got all kinds of time, you are letting go of the unshakable kingdom and you're grabbing hold of flimsy earthly satisfaction. And that's the mentality of the soul man and like I said, worse, the carnal Christian. What do you mean? The soul man, the soul man is the, is the Christian who tends to be legalistic. Just checking the boxes. The soul man tends to be demanding. A get it done kind of do, dude, uh, prideful. Heady into the knowledge. The soul man ignores the spiritual. And be, listen, because he ignores the spiritual, he has trouble hearing God. 
some maybe even here this morning would say, I don't, I, don't, I don't really believe God speaks to us. He says he does. Jesus said his sheep know his voice, know his voice. That's pretty clear. Oh, it's an allegory. Okay. Do you want to hear God or not? See, I believe that he speaks to us first and foremost through his word. And if you want to hear him, you tune into his word. It's like a radio dial. The more I know his word, the, the, the more things get in tune and I can hear him. But the soul man, the one living by the head, remember the, the, the learned person, not the child who is unlearned, but the learned person has trouble getting out of the soul and getting into spiritual things. And so when we talk about the return of Jesus, ah, it's kind of cynical. Worse, the carnal Christian just turns to the flesh. I go to church, you know, when I feel like I need to. But the carnal Christian will manipulate fellow servants to please his, himself or herself. Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Listen, I've never thought about it this way before, but sometimes it's not just trying to please others that takes away from me serving Jesus, it's pleasing myself. If I'm trying to please myself, I'm not a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I seek to please him. And when I assume, whether as a soul man or a carnal Christian, when I assume that Jesus is delaying chronidze, he's not coming for a long time, it becomes really easy for me to ascend to the throne of my life, to take the place of self-importance. And both the soulish and the carnal Christian will yield some bad results, which gives me principle number two. Look at verse 49. He begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with the drunkards. Just take the first part of that. He begins to beat his fellow slaves. Principle number two, the servant does not castigate his fellow servants. He does not capitulate to the mockers, but he also is not to castigate his fellow servants. What do you mean castigate? I mean punish. Do you realize that we do not have the right as servants of God to punish each other. Discipline, I'll talk about that in a second, but listen to what the Lord said through Ezekiel, the prophet. Ezekiel 34, verse 1, just listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of the Jewish people. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel who have, who have been feeding, feeding themselves. What's the role of the servant? To give the food at the proper time. The shepherds of Israel given the food to themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and they were scattered my flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek. Therefore, you shepherds, 
Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for the lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding my sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. It's when a follower of Jesus, when a Christian goes to the soul, becomes carnal, and rather than feeding fellow believers, starts to feed on them. Well, that doesn't happen around here, right? Paul had to write to the churches in Galatia, chapter 5, verse 14, and say the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's, that's serious business. My role is not to punish my brothers and sisters. And I have in the past at points in my life, and probably you have too, especially when someone wrongs you or crosses you, <laughs> I'm going to make him pay. And maybe you don't even say that out loud, but in your mind you're like, that's it, cut off. Not going to be in a relationship with that person anymore. I'm going to punish them. I'm going to make them feel what they did to me. And I don't have that right. If I'm a servant of the household of God, much less a child or a priest, I don't have the right to do the punishing. That's not my job. You might say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, what about church discipline? Doesn't the Bible give us the right to rebuke? Listen very carefully. 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, our food. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. How is the shepherd to bring a rebuke, church discipline, if you will, by preaching the word. You let the word be the discipline. You let the word deal with the person. See, the Lord knows best how to discipline his people. Even if his people need a certain punishment, that's the master's business, not mine. Because the master knows how to administer punishment correctly, righteously. And Jesus said, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So I repent, Lord, of trying to punish or discipline my brothers and sisters. That's not my job. My job is to feed, to bring the word, and to walk in the will of God. So the servant does not capitulate to the mockers. The servant does not castigate his fellow servants. Verse 49, continuing, Jesus said, after he beats his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards. Number three, third one here, the servant does not commiserate with drunkards. The servant does not commiserate with drunkards. Proverbs 31, verse 6 says, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. Now, this is not Rick's anti-drinking teaching. Listen carefully. Are you bitter? 
are you lost? If you're bitter and if you're perishing, man, belly up to the bar. That's what Proverbs 31 is indicating. Hey, if the guy's perishing, give him something to drink. If the guy's life is bitter, give him a sip of wine. Why? Because it will numb the pain. But listen to me. There's something so much better than getting numb. You can get numb or you can become alert. And alertness comes by the Holy Spirit of the living God. As Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Are, 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 you, are you lost? Get saved. Is your life bitter? Be filled with the Spirit. And that bitterness will turn into sweet salvation. So the, the servant of the Lord, he doesn't commiserate with the drunkards. Now some would say, didn't Jesus eat and drink with the sinners? I think I read that somewhere. And the answer is yes, he did. To seek and to save the lost. But Jesus, you will never find him commiserating with immorality. You realize every time he was with sinners, look at how often Jesus said, oh, and by the way, stop sinning. Or go your way and sin no more. Or I forgive you of your sins. And then he heals them. Jesus never crossed that line. Jesus was always absolutely clear when he hung out with sinners, it was to save sinners, not to be like sinners. And that still tends to be a problem in the church of joining in people's sin, thinking, well, I'll hang out with them and they'll become comfortable with me. And then I can talk about Jesus at some point down the line and you'll never save someone that way. You'll never draw someone to the Lord by drawing away from the Lord. You end up right back in soulish, carnal Christianity. Those about whom Paul wrote, Philippians 3.18, for many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is appetite, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And you know what Paul said, Romans 8, the mind set on the flesh is death. Mind set on the spirit is life and is peace. And that's a warning to servants who have that fleshly mindset. Verse 50 tells us, Jesus says, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know him and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the parallel verses, my friends, he's talking about hell. Let me just be clear. But why, why does it say he'll assign him a place, note this, with the hypocrites, verse 51? Because this is someone who claims to be a servant in the house of God. And the servant in the house who acts like the outsiders outside of the house is a hypocrite. And is not a servant of the Lord. These words of Jesus in Matthew 24, not just the first part with the birth pangs and the run-up to the glorious appearing, not just the part about Israel or the part about being received unto Jesus in the air. Not just, those are all prophetic, but this last section is a prophetic word absolutely sure because Jesus is saying when he comes, he's going to find two kinds of people. He's going to find faithful servants and he's going to find servants who forsake. Faithful servants and forsaking servants. Listen to the word of Jesus through Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 65, verse 13. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart and you will wail with a broken spirit. You'll leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my sight, which tells us in small part that we will never think about 2020 again or all the troubles that maybe we have had in this brief little breath of a life because as servants of the Lord, we're going to be caught up in serving in the kingdom and how wonderful that day is going to be. The faithful servant who feeds or the forsaking servant. And you know what? The difference comes down to one basic thing. Just one thing. It comes down to what we believe about the immediacy of Jesus' return. That will make all the difference. If you live your life believing that his coming is imminent at any time, faithful servant, because you're going to want to be ready for him. If you live your life believing that he's not coming for a long time, forsaking servant, because you're not really worried about it. And that makes a massive difference in faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 says, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. But for a testimony, uh, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Now listen, I want you to do something for me real quick. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 12, and we're going to end there. Luke chapter 12, which I came to studying Matthew 24 because the teaching is so similar and yet quite different. So listen to this, Luke chapter 12, verse 35, where Jesus again is teaching, and he says, be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. And then he says, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and he will have them recline at the table, that is his servants, and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those. Blessed are those whose master finds them so doing when he comes. Matthew 24, what are they so doing? They're feeding their fellow servants, fellow children, fellow priests. Blessed are they. And so you read this and go, oh, that parable, yeah, I've heard that's, that's Matthew 24, right? Listen, wait, who is Jesus talking to here in Luke chapter 12? And, and by comparison, who's he talking to in Matthew 24? The very interesting difference here. Two audiences, 
Two different audiences are being told to be ready. An audience in Luke chapter 12, audience in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 even talks about being ready for the rapture. You know, he's just talked about in context. I'm going to re receive some to myself. One will be taken, one will be left. And in that context, he goes on to say, be ready, because you don't know when I'm coming. So it's very clear that he's talking to a, a broad audience of people at that point. But here, he says to be ready for the return. Now, we talked about the difference between the rapture and the return of Jesus. And you can look at the sheet that we handed out and think through all the different verses that talk about his glorious return, where he sets foot on the earth, or the rapture, where we meet him in the clouds. Two different teachings of, of the Bible, right? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 says very clearly, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives in that day. Speaking of his glorious return. So Luke chapter 12, he's talking to those who are expecting his glorious return. In Matthew 24, what we've been looking at this morning, Jesus is talking very clearly, go back and look at verse 1, to the apostles. Because they're coming out of the temple and the apostles ask him some questions and Jesus starts talking to them, to the apostles. It's really important you understand the audience here because the apostles have their toes both in Israel and in the church. They're Jews, but they're also going to be the first of the church, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. So the church, it's a word for the church. Matthew 24, in fact, we can rightly receive this as a word to the church, but it'll also be ultimately a word for Israel. It's a word for anyone who wants to pay attention. But I take Matthew 24, spoken to the apostles, as a word for the church to be ready because we don't, do not know the day or the hour when Jesus will call and will go to be with him. It's not the same in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 is a different audience. Luke chapter 12 is very nearly the same parable, but it's given at a completely different time in Jesus' ministry. That's not accidental in the Bible. You do understand that there are things that he taught more than once. Good teacher's a repeater. And Jesus often repeated parables. He'd tell this group of people a parable, and then he'd tell this group of people, and he'd tweak it, change it slightly for this group because he's got a different impact or, or, or meaning for them. And so in Luke chapter 12, the warning to readiness is for Israel. Israel the servants he's talking about in Luke chapter 12 Listen to me, note this, I, I know this absolutely. The servants in Luke 12 speaks of Israel. The servants in Matthew 24 could be Israel after the fact as they study it, but definitely the church. How do you know that Luke chapter 12 is a warning specifically to Israel, that, that the servants in the parable here, those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes, how do we know for sure that is Israel. One simple reason. In Luke 12, 36, the master returns from a wedding feast. There's no wedding feast mentioned in Matthew 24. It's mentioned in Luke 12 when he's talking to Jews. And the master comes back from a wedding feast. And brothers and sisters, you know this. We are not simply to be servants. We are not called only to be children. We are not perfected simply to be priests. We are the master's bride. He comes from the wedding feast, so do we. 
because we're the bride at that feast. And Jesus is always intentional with the words that he speaks. Right now, in the run-up to the rapture, as we've been talking about it, we get to dine at the priestly table. We get the food of the word of God, doing the will of God that feeds and nourishes us as priests, as children, as servants. We are being trained up for the kingdom. However, and I love this, Luke 12 says, when the master returns and us with him, get it in context, he is going to seat faithful Israel at the table. He's going to don a waiter's apron and the master Jesus himself is going to serve them their food at that proper time. Now I know some of you are saying, wait, 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 what about us? I thought we got to sit at the table and eat. We've used that. We've used that picture. That's supposed to be us. Wait. That we serve him now and then we get to get, sit down and he's going to serve us then. And we've made that comparison even here at the bridge. Brothers and sisters, what did Jesus say? Luke twenty two twenty seven. Who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And I leave this thought with you this morning. Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I were invited to come and serve Israel right alongside Jesus? Not to be just seated at the table taking in the food, but to be those who get to put on aprons with Jesus and serve them. To be called by Jesus to serve shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow with him. Someone says, I need a little more bread. And Jesus goes, we have some bread? And I go, yeah, Jesus, here it is. And he hands it. <laughs> I would so much rather be doing that than sitting there dining. Either way, seated or serving, we are his servants right now. And we're his children. And we are his royal priesthood. And best of all, we are his bride. Jesus, I pray that you will make us ready, that we will be a people prepared for the moment that you call, that we hear you say, come up here, that we are good to go, a people made perfect in the day of Christ Jesus. I believe, Lord, that you have a calling for us right now, and I ask that you draw us all to that place of, of dining on this food, of serving your word, and of acting on your will. Until you come, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <music>